morning and welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. So today I want to get into reading and providing a narration interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. On some level, it's kind of a ridiculous thing to do. Uh, but what came to me as I was thinking about it was back when I was in sixth grade, my teacher uh, allowed me to teach the class. I asked her, just I think in some kind of a passing way, I was like, oh, maybe I teach the class tomorrow. <laughs> Something like that. I was very much a class clown. And she was like, okay, sure, you go ahead, you do it. She was pretty cool. And uh, I was able to teach the class the next day. I came with a lesson plan. And I attempted to discipline my friends and keep them on task. And it was very hilarious and funny. And what I appreciate about it is that out of everything from sixth grade, I think that's one of the only things that I can honestly remember, aside from another teacher pretending to talk with an accent like Marlon Brando as the godfather, and also when September 11th happened. I remember that as well. Those are the only three memories I probably have at the moment that I can pinpoint at that grade. But I remember that day extremely viscerally as it stood out. And so, uh, you know, I have learned that if you really want to learn, you need to teach something. You need to explain it. You need to uh, not just digest it, but you need to process it. And not just through your own understanding, but you need to think about how the people around you are absorbing and digesting the information and think about it through their lens and re-interpret uh, and re-envision your understanding through their context and then find your own unique way to do it. Um, so my experience from teaching first, you know, my exposure, you could say, uh, in a lot of ways comes from my mother who's the gender studies and politics professor at the University of Virginia. And just to share briefly on my politics, uh, I like to say to people I'm a complete anarchist, <laughs> which is a very loose way of saying a lot of things. But, you know, I was raised being educated along the lines of Marxism and Malcolm X and other revolutionary figures, Michel Foucault, many people like that and encouraged in that direction uh, I think my dad exposed me to Abby Hoffman <laughs> and growing up I wanted to be Zach De La Roca and I've written a lot of songs that are deeply inspired by his poetry so that's a large aspect of kind of like my political slanting you know and the reason that I kind of share that because I was educated at home daily at the, around the dinner table, all kinds of moments in the car ride about very intensive critical thinking and deconstruction of society and conformity and uh, social structures and so on and so forth, relying on prominent thinkers of the Western world. So... That's a lot of where my political leanings gravitate towards. That being said, I've been recently listening a lot to 
different Navy SEALs talk about their perspective in life. And while that on surface level seems like kind of like, why of all the things would you listen to a Navy SEAL talk about life? Uh, if you're on a yogic path and your political leanings are extremely towards something not oriented and affiliated with supporting empire and well there's a couple reasons right for instance i had rob foley on this podcast who's a friend of mine i talked to him the other day actually he's a former navy seal and well for one as he said uh you know for me when i went out there I wasn't doing that because of patriotism or nationalism. I was going out there because of the, of the brothers next to me. I cared about that guy, you know, and also had like a calling towards the extreme. And then, and that's kind of what we're getting at here because there's something in the extremity of life that reveals something that is a present in all circumstances. You know, human nature is revealed in extremes. Let's put it that way. Under intense stress and turmoil and pain and suffering and all of the intensities and carnage of life that's where something profound is revealed and in addition to that these people are you know there's a kind of a mythology around them of like these are the most fierce highly trained warriors right and so on someone maybe not well versed in the study of yoga you would say why would you study a warrior? Well, if, if we recall the Bhagavad Gita, perhaps the most quintessential text on yoga, is a story about war and fratricide, about people, families, friends killing each other. It's also a study on nonviolence and peace and equanimity but it's told through the context of war and violence death and destruction and that right there to me is extremely profound and says a lot right there just the fact that okay we're going to teach you about peace and equanimity in yoga how are we going to do it let's start with families killing each other with friends slaughtering each other it's like okay interesting why is that Life as it is, as Joseph Campbell says, uh, life is a monstrosity, but it's beautiful, but it is a monstrosity. And this is what I think the Bhagavad Gita is attempting to convey to us. And so I've been, you know, listening to a couple other people. Like I like listening, hearing what David Goggins has to say in terms of how to muster discipline and direct focus against tremendous resistance and pain for instance that person broke both of their legs had stress fractures and then continued to go through the most intensive training of the navy seals going through hell week running on broken legs he would duct tape them and then find they would go numb and then he'd, he'd be fine and they would put them in like ice water for like 30 minutes and he said that was when you get the most relief. <laughs> it, it, totally crazy, right? But also someone totally driven and not willing to back down 
against any of the circumstances, obstacles, or life, you know, challenging life very deeply and embracing that challenge fully and saying, you know, I will overcome this. Just that, that can be applied profoundly to so many things within anyone's life. It's that those are life lessons about, you know, how, what do we do in the face of adversity? Do we back down or do we say, okay, I'm going to duct tape my legs up and just keep running on broken legs. And fascinating enough, he says that after that period, his legs actually healed. So very interesting thing to reflect upon. Just understanding about inner strength, perseverance, discipline, and mindset, mentality to overcome. And I love a couple of these simple phrases that you get from the Navy SEALs you have. Uh, the only easy day was yesterday. I absolutely love that phrase. I think that there is a something very liberating and cathartic about the meditation of that the only easy day was yesterday because oftentimes our mindset is adapted towards taking the path of least resistance and the moment that we're confronted with tremendous resistance we suddenly find ourselves in a victim mentality we find ourselves why me poor me situation as my teacher likes to say <laughs> but instead saying no the only easy day was yesterday Every day is difficult. And even if the external circumstances of life are difficult, as the Bhagavad Gita teaches us, the inner process is a war. And even if, you know, maybe it's just that day where the inner and the outer are just flowing great, having that teaching, the only easy day was yesterday, do not take the path of least resistance and do not accept mediocrity as much as you can. That's a process you have to cultivate. But Taking those little gems, those three phrases, I will not take the path of least resistance. I will not accept mediocrity in my life. And the only easy day was yesterday. Those are kind of like Navy SEAL uh, ethos right there. Then we can push ourselves and challenge ourselves even when life is comfortable. Because if life is comfortable <laughs> and, you're, and you are succumbing to that and embracing and falling into that then you can bet that trouble is at your door i'm pretty sure there's a grateful dead song right and they say something like if life looks like easy street then you know that trouble is at your door <laughs> and i have another book here by another former military person stephen pressfield who wrote the legend of bagger vance and the war of art and turning pro I have turning pro here. The War of Art profoundly changed my life. My ex-girlfriend introduced it to me. And uh, he was a former Marine and basically running from his life's calling of being a writer. And he did so for like 50 years until he did anything quality. And he talks about this process of when you're a Marine, you know, you you love when everything sucks. You love when it's difficult. They, The Marines, they want it to be that way. They want to be in the trenches. They want to be in the mud. They want to get, get shot at. They want, you know, the struggle. And then they were like, yeah, it was the worst thing ever. Like this, But there's a mentality around that that's trained into a soldier embracing the difficult aspects of life. <clears throat> and what Stephen Pressfield tries to do in the War of Art and Turning Pro is he is – 
creating the mindset of someone that wants to do something transcendental. And they're very spiritual texts, the, the two ones that he wrote. He draws on the Bhagavad Gita and teachings from even shamans in Africa that he spent time with, like the Maasai, and uh, all kinds of things. Like, And some of it's like super funny. <laughs> right, I'm trying to find a good one here. Uh, I recommend you, you check out The War of Art or the... Um, turning pro which is the follow-up to it and there's many profound things about our character flaws that block us from activating our higher calling and he says essentially you know whatever it is that you're afraid of that's that's your compass your fear is your compass that's what you need to move towards and the greater the calling the greater the resistance and that resistance never goes away it's never going to stop he says it's like Jaws or the Terminator. It just keeps coming <laughs> no matter what you do to it. And he's saying that, you know, this is our soul's calling for, you know, liberation and enlightenment. And that's why there is this inverse push of resistance because it's asking us to, you know, move out of the cocoon and turn into a, you know, flowering butterfly type situation where we're spreading something profound to the world. And... Uh, it, it's just profound in a lot of ways, what he has to say. So, I mean, just, I, I, li I like this one here. <laughs> I just, I opened it. He says, the title of this one is The Tribe Doesn't Give a Shit. The amateur dreads becoming who she really is because she fears that this new person will be judged by others as different. The tribe will declare us as weird or queer or crazy. The tribe will reject us. Here's the truth. The tribe doesn't give a shit. There is no tribe. The gang or posse that we imagine is sustaining us by the bonds we share is in fact a conglomeration of individuals who are just as fucked up as we are and just as terrified. Each individual is so caught up in his own bullshit that he doesn't have two seconds to worry about yours or mine or to reject or diminish us because of it. When we truly understand that the tribe doesn't give a damn, we are free. There is no tribe and there never was. Our lives are entirely up to us. He curses, obviously, quite a bit in these, but at the same time, you know, he's trying to drive a point across, you know, and it's it's really beautiful what he has to say, especially when he's talking about things related to mysticism and the struggle that we all go through and can all relate to in terms of trying to connect to that space of where the muse can come in. Oh, and this is very funny, actually. You know, <laughs> I, I, this is not intentional. I just pulled this up. This one's called <laughs> The Professional Has Compassion for Herself. And he says, I got the chance a few years ago to watch a famous trainer work with his thoroughbreds. I had imagined that the process would be something hardcore like Navy SEAL training. To my surprise, the sessions were more like pro play. The work was serious as in teaching the two-year-olds to enter the starting gate, and the horses were definitely learning. But the trainer took pains to make the schooling feel like fun. When a horse got tired, the trainer took him off the track. If a mount got bored or restive, the trainer never forced him to continue or drove him through the pain. <clears throat> and he says, A horse is a flight animal. Even a stallion, if he can, will choose flight over confrontation. Picture the most sensitive person you've ever known. A horse is ten times more sensitive. A horse is a naked nervous system, particularly a thoroughbred. He's a child, a three-year-old, 
big and fast as he is, he is a baby. Horses understand the whip, but I don't want a racer that runs that way. A horse that loves to run will beat a horse that's compelled every day of the week. I want my horses to love the track. I want my exercise riders to have to hold them back in the morning because they're so excited to get out and run. Never train your horse to exhaustion. Leave him wanting more. So I said that was funny because uh, Rob Foley, who I mentioned a moment ago, former Navy SEAL on this podcast, uh, is a is very deeply enmeshed in equine therapy, working with horses and veterans and helping um, people connect to uh, innocence and compassion and peace inside of themselves through the connection with the horse. And I think it's very beautiful. What the person is saying here is the horse is like a three-year-old. You know, they are very sensitive. So just interesting kind of synchronicity there. And like I said, I'm not reading from (laughs) Turning Pro, although I am. Uh, on this, I wanted to go more into the Bhagavad Gita, but <clears throat> this uh, this is also very relevant, though, because as I was saying, it's listening to the mentality of a warrior, right? This is kind of what I wanted to encapsulate, and what I think the Bhagavad Gita is trying to put forth is that we need to shift our focus from life being like in this very new age bizarre paradigm of like wearing white robes and the flowers and butterflies and singing happy songs and la 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 and all that stuff is great i go to many things where i wear white clothes and there's flowers and we sing happy songs i'm all for that i'm a musician i love to sing happy songs i like to be happy (laughs) but when we are only getting sucked into that you can bet you are on the path of least resistance and this is what i feel new age spirituality has perverted with uh the actuality of life in a lot of ways and i know i think that a lot of people who kind of cross paths with me have this connection with sort of new age stuff which is fine you know new age stuff is there's great things about it who doesn't love that enya song in lord of the rings on a hill. i'm a musician but i can't master that i have to get a show on here <laughs> so you know uh we're not i'm not condemning the new age thing i'm simply saying that it oftentimes i think deludes people and often only offers a piece of the puzzle. And this is something that my, my teacher speaks a lot about of in his own way, where he says, like, people come to a spiritual community and you think, oh, it's going to be all relaxing, so we're spiritual. There's not going to be any more problems because we're spiritual. And then all of a sudden you find, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure he says it just like this. He goes, and you find the spiritual people are the worst kind of people. <laughs> something like that you know but the point of there being a wake-up call to the fact that the spiritual path is not about relaxation and going to the spa and all that there's a moment sure but the Bhagavad Gita is teaching us it's about war it's conflict it's confrontation and there is a certain degree of violence in it and pain and suffering (laughs) that's important to grapple with it's important that you don't lose yourself in that as well meaning you as friedrich 
Nietzsche would say, he who deals with monsters must be careful that he does not become a monster himself. And when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes into you. So it was as coming back to this premise of Navy SEALs in that statement there, I was listening to Jocko Willing's podcast and he was talking about uh, Jocko Willing, for the record, if you're not aware, was a former Navy SEAL commander in Ramadi in Iraq. And he was in one of the most you know violent places. And he's talking about uh, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning or Man's Quest for Meaning. I don't recall which one it was off the title. Viktor Frankl, a former, I want to say, I think he was German or Austrian, Jewish, psycho analyst and he went to Auschwitz and I haven't read the book but I've heard about it for years and a couple quotes here and there and uh, they're talking about his interpretation of how of his experiences at Auschwitz right the concentration camp and how what he saw was revealed at that moment of extremity right extremes revealing human nature is how some Jewish inmates were forced into essentially assisting the Nazis. But they had a decision. The Nazis would say to them, we're either going to kill you or you can join us and you can be an abuser towards prisoners. And so then they ha- there was and then they would observe that some people in that state would just, you know, of course they're like, I want to save myself. But then other people with like an extreme ethical character framework, morale, um, structure within themselves and you know resistance to that said no i'm not going to do that and and embracing the value and character trait of self-sacrifice um and there's a number of other examples of where victor frankl's talking about people that go from uh would just become degraded into an animal state and would just give up and die and then there's other people that always found a why for their suffering to push forward and that no matter what was taken from them in the concentration camp they would always find at the end of the day some people obviously there's people that were not able to connect to this a inner freedom external from what was happening um separate from what was happening in the external world and that that could not be taken and that was in the form of their attitude and that impacted me a lot to listen to that um because this is something that i've just been meditating deeply on this process of the quarantine and all the stuff that i've been involved with my life about how like there's you know painful things that i've been through and how at the end of the day you can use the suffering and the pain and the and the uh unfair we could say circumstances of life and use that to our advantage to cultivate inner strength resilience grit and an attitude a disposition of moral character and right action you know i've done all kinds of things that are not perfect of course so i'm not saying anything about myself here i'm as deeply flawed as the next person in a lot of ways but talking about how we can draw upon these extreme circumstances as opportunities for empowerment and i mentioned once before on the podcast there's a quote i read in a joseph campbell book which i don't know if it actually is true but regardless if not if it's true the teaching of it is powerful enough which is that 
uh, there's a Chinese or Japanese character, a symbol in the language, and the symbol or character translates uh, to crisis, but also to opportunity. And uh, uh, Viktor Frankl is talking about how when they were in Auschwitz, it became not what do we want to get out of life, but what is life asking from us? What is it that, you know, because they're in this place where the, their their lim their freedoms are totally revoked, everything. They're in, and, you know, listening to the podcast, I actually was listening to it months ago, and I had to stop because the, some of the um, uh, depictions of what was happening in the camps was so terrifying to me. I was like, man, I can know if I can listen to this. And then for some reason, I started listening to it yesterday. And then that part, they shifted to the more of the moral teachings and the spiritual lessons uh, that happened and i was you know deeply moved by it but to get through the first part of the podcast on jocko's podcast was like oh man this stuff's terrifying um but understanding about this attitude and this mentality of what freedom is and it's interesting too because you know we can look at things in like a larger context of you know why how does something so atrocious like that happen because it is terrifying and it, it's interesting because I actually went to Auschwitz in 2014 in Poland. I went there by myself. It's right outside of Krakow. And at the time, I had been dealing a lot with, like, let's see, like just, like, anxiety in a certain way. Like, and a lot of, you know, mistrust of others and that kind of thing. Just social anxiety and just, I was in, like, a deep healing process then, which, where I was starting to get a lot of light at that point, but... I was working through a lot of things. I was 24 at the time. And I went there, and I, I read that you could, if you go early, um, you don't have to go with a group. You can go walk around the area on your own. And there's two parts to it. There's Auschwitz and there's Birkenau. And Auschwitz is like the prison uh, kind of looking spot, and then Birkenau is where everyone stayed in the outside in the fields, if I remember correctly. They're a little bit separated. And when I went to Auschwitz, I was walking through, I got there on my own, and man, I don't really feel like describing the actual um, things that, like, you know, I saw there, but there, a few things, like, they have all the shoes on display, because those were saved, all the hair was saved, they have that stuff in case, they have, like, cells where you can see, like, nail scratches on the walls and stuff, and I remember, in like, the area was very industrial, and the day it was raining when I went there, when I say it's industrial, I mean like you, it's like a factory almost, a prison slash factory kind of situation. And this is not where the gas chambers were. This is where um, people were working. And there were some prison type uh, areas within there, you know, big electrical barbed wire. And you walk through the gates where they say, work shall set you free. And going through there was... You know, at first it was it was kind of stormy outside, but not not it's just like kind of dreary, put it that way. And I was walking through, and man, within like two hours, I was freaking shaking. It was terrifying, like it was terrifying. And there then groups of people because I was going through certain spots on my own, and like, you know, it is this this very visceral thing of like, whoa, like this is not like a movie, this is not a, a work of fiction this is something that happened here 
and the intensity of it and be like this is very real that this stuff happens and in in a lot of ways this stuff still happens all over the world in many places and even and maybe not at that scale but in smaller scales all over the place i was in um mumbai in india and driving by uh and on a tour where they took us through the slums and stuff like that where a lot of normal people live for the record in the indian slums it's not people who are um uh like homeless it's just normal working people but they showed us like there's a whole area where it's like all these people are basically sex workers and sex slaves we're driving through and like you're just like okay wow that's really in your face and intense and uh you know going through Auschwitz then there you know there was a moment where the groups came in and then I was just like like literally like a part of me was like shaking and then I, I talked to a guard I was like I need to get out of here uh, or uh, someone who worked there and she's like how do I get to the next place the Birkenau spot and she's like oh come this way and I was walking with her and, and I was just like I was like is it how did this happen I don't even remember what I said to her but it was this very this moment of like tremendous like opening and vulnerability within me of just being like of with this stranger this person and she's like yes yes it's very intense and that's why we have this here so people know about this and doesn't happen again and you know all the student groups of young kids were going through there together and then uh i took a little bus over to birkenau and it was a really beautiful day all of a sudden like all of a sudden the clouds part is like 72 degrees and sunny in poland and uh, Birkenau, like I said, it's all big, giant fields. Like maybe if you're out in Texas or something like that, all green and everything. And I remember, you know, I was walking the train tracks down to where the the gas chambers were, and they had the um, some of the cattle cars where the Jewish people and other uh, people were brought in. And there was a group of students there from Israel, or Jewish, and they had the Israeli flag, and they were. Uh, a couple of them were like waving it and they were like singing songs of joy <laughs> and they were like dancing in celebration and uh, like they were it was like exuberance and I remember uh you know, I kind of went a little bit towards some of the areas where people were stayed and stuff like that. But I, I also um, kind of just kept walking in the field. And I remember just like sitting down and it was just like it was actually like really beautiful there in a, in a certain way when you were in nature. Right. Because the other spot had been very industrialized and had been um, like a factory. And this was like, you know, just like kind of cheap camp housing. And, you know, obviously there's the, the gas chambers, which had been bombed because the nazis just blew it up so they didn't want to get in trouble for it when they when they realized that people were coming they wanted to hide it um but mostly it was the presence of nature is birds chirping it's sunny and um the breeze is going through it's all grass it's really beautiful you know although there's this very disturbing thing that happened there and then i remember like walk like like uh, walking out and when i felt complete there and i was walking on each wooden track like really slowly like walk like one you know deliberately stepping on each step and when i got to about like almost at the exit i stepped and like this big black snake goes like not like you know it's like four feet long or something as big and i actually got a quick photo of it which is 
and I was like, and you know, when I saw the snake go out, it startled me, obviously, a huge shot of adrenaline, I was like, whoa, (laughs) and at the same time, too, it was as if it felt like, you know, uh, like a, a devil or demon or something had just been, like, released, both externally and internally, and I remember going back to the hostel and I started, I was talking, there's these three Swedish girls, they were sisters, a little younger than I was, and I was talking to them, they had been there, and there's a couple other people there, some guy from Mexico, another person from Argentina, and I remember talking with them, and they're like, oh, you went to Auschwitz, and I was like, I was like, yeah, it was really difficult, and they're all like, yeah, yeah, really difficult, (laughs) it's just a funny Swedish accent, but, uh, but then I remember all of a sudden just to like express that of of like how painful, you know, the energy of going there. I don't know how to put it, like just the intensity of it, put it that way. And then I felt like within myself, like a lot of opening and connection with the people there in the hostel. Because like they're all, they had all been there too, either earlier or in their life or earlier that day. And if you get the chance to go to Krakow, it's extremely beautiful amazing city in Poland you don't have to go to Auschwitz and as I was talking with them it's just like that kind of energy of mistrust or social anxiety or anxiety in general suddenly cleared and I felt like a sense of like more comfort and transparency and vulnerability in human communication again and I remember from like that day out I never really felt constricted in conversation and human relationship uh in the way that i had felt for years prior it was like going there release something really really deep and it was super powerful experience and i just remember like all of a sudden there was something about going there as terrifying and on a certain way like damning of human beings that actually like internally in a visceral sense in my experience of life reawakened a stronger connection to humanity and to myself and I was thinking about that and in context with the kids who were singing and I was like wow it's amazing how these places of trauma and despair and violence can now become a place where powerful healing can be transmitted at least to some people and can now become the opposition of what they once were and just you know a meditation about how uh well exactly that i don't want to expand more upon that but so this being said coming back to we're still going to get into the Bhagavad Gita. This is a very long thing, but there was a, there was a lot of connections here with many things that I felt were relevant to talk about. And we'll do it in a couple of different episodes because obviously it's a book. It can't really just convey the whole thing in a single podcast. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when coming back, right, this mentality of a warrior, right? This is the premise is that you have been drafted and you don't have a choice. Sorry, you're drafted. That's it. You can either go to prison or you can become a hero on the on the battlefield, right? That's that's the premise of the Bhagavad Gita. And this is what they're trying to convey to us that life is a war. 
and you have to fight. You don't have a choice. And so that's in a lot of ways, like this is, that's the deepest spiritual teaching of, you know, what's at the foundation you could say of, of yoga, the Hindu tradition is war. And then you look at, right, the Buddhist, they say in more, you know, life is dissatisfactory, also translated, you know, not always accurately, life is suffering. There's old age sickness and death. There's suffering in the world. We must learn to overcome and transcend it. So this on the eastern side right but then on you know on the western side we can have like there's the god and there's the devil and there's demons and all these kind of things so there's there's a there is a inherent conflict in traditions that they're trying to bring forth to us and they're not saying to us es escapism is the route and obviously you know if you've listened to i think coming back to nietzsche his greatest criticism of christianity was that these people are not fit for life because they do not want to uh, be here on earth. They just want to die and go to heaven and be with God. And I would say in a lot of ways, like, you know, that's, I'm, I'm not taking his perspective personally. I'm just saying that's something that he was saying where there's this idea of escapism. But I think the teachings of Christ are not about that. For instance, he's saying, you know, the kingdom of heaven is right here, cast upon the earth. It's only that you don't see it. So he's saying it's here. It's now. It's oh, welcome. Okay, great. <laughs> and as I you know we're, we're talking about this there's conflict right and so we don't want to get caught up in escapism you know and Mark said right that religion is the opiate of the masses but what I love about the Bhagavad Gita is it's not like that it's not providing it's not telling you to numb yourself it's a pretty direct saying you must confront yourself and you must fight and there is no way out other than to fight. You have to fight. You must take action in this world, even if you do not like what is happening. And so as I reflect on that teaching, right, it's like who better to turn to than to understand a little bit about combat than a Navy SEAL? <laughs> not that I feel yoga is necessarily combat in a literal sense, right? But there's something about that kind of training and mentality that can illuminate the yogic tradition, I think. And so I'm bridging worlds here. This is just how my mind works. My teacher once said that for an Aries, rather for every astrological sign, the, the prominent aspect of that sign is a reflection of how your psyche is the filter that your psyche sees the world through. So uh, like for a Scorpio, he says there's a lot of like emphasis on sex. For an Aries, it's war. <laughs> so I am an Aries. I have Mercury in Aries, so I'm always at war, and it sounds like I'm always at war as well. Astrological teachings. And so I find that the the teachings of like what it is to be a warrior and in a real a real combat situation, not so much a glorification of that, but just what are the, the the revelations of that experience and also simultaneously what is the training to be able to function at a high capacity in that environment that's a very fascinating process and i think approaching your own life which i pray and hope is oriented towards peace compassion and helping others and creativity and you know relaxation as much as possible but the more that you can orient yourself 
with the mindset of a warrior towards those values, I think, is what we're trying to get at. This is what Krishna is telling Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. And that is, uh, in a lot of ways, contradictory. But as I'm talking about this thing with Auschwitz, right, it's like, you have a place of the most diabolical crime in human history in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's become a place of healing and transcendence. It transcends that. So we're talking about the process of transcendence and the mentality of what is required to access that transcendental state. You know, and like, for instance, listen to David Goggins talk about that. You know, he does so in a very rough, military-oriented way. But there's something really beautiful that comes through about someone that understands suffering and how to overcome it. And I also enjoy, like I said, listening to Jocko Willink because he has a different approach where he was a leader in a combat situation and talks a lot about the premise of leadership. And that's something that's interesting to me because I live in spiritual community where there is a hierarchical order you know, it's nothing like the military, obviously, but there's certain principles that come through, you know, service to others, sacrifice, discipline, there's respect to authority, to elders, to people of knowledge, and how to function as a leader within that kind of a social structure, I think is an incredibly important value. And I've, I've found a lot of uh, gems in Jocko Willing's work within leadership of lessons that he learned and for instance, one of the ones that really stands out to me is he says, there's no bad leaders, there's only bad leadership. And I just totally butchered that statement. It's actually, there's no bad teams, there's only bad leaders and bad leadership. So I just totally you know, spun that the wrong way, but the correct answer is the focus is on teams. And that's a big part of, of Navy SEAL training too as well. These guys are not like James Bond or something like that going out alone. To, you know on their own doing the thing they're functioning in teams working to overcome adversity and their own individual struggle by connecting and operating as a team unit and highly effective level are uh, and like i said i also just want to say this again my politics are not oriented towards empire so unfortunately i think a lot of you know uh what we see in the military is nothing more than um people trying to um, manipulate soldiers for political and economic gain at the expense of millions of other people's lives. It's it, and that's horrific. So, but that to me does not cast negativity upon people such as Rob Foley. Like that's someone who's like, you know, he's joining a military service to do something in aspect of service and for care of others. And you know, there's. There's all kinds of things we can talk about with, with people who are soldiers that maybe you could say is misguided or something along those lines. But at the end of the day, we're not trying to get into a judgment of anyone or their actions. We're trying to look at mentality and where actions lead. To judge others is not really where my focus is right now. I'm not really interested in that. I'm only emphasizing my politics because I don't want people to get confused listening to me talk like I'm aggrandizing the military because that's not what I'm doing. And I'm not interested in doing that. Although I am interested in the power of the mentality of a warrior and how it can be applied to 
living a compassionate, peaceful, illuminated, transcendental life as much as possible. So uh, Jocko Willink is talking about there's no bad teams, there's only bad leaders and bad leadership. And the story he gives is super profound. I, I, I love it. Uh, they're doing these boat races where these guys have to carry these super heavy boats on their head. And they have to run back and forth. They're doing races. There's like four or five groups of them. And one group is always winning. Another group is always losing. The winning group has a great leader and everyone's like, yeah. And when they win, they get to rest. And it's like, you know, heaven because you have to, you have to rest in this extreme, extreme training. And if you lose, you have to do more push-ups and calisthenics and get screamed at. And then that team, everyone's hating each other and cursing each other and blaming each other. And I actually don't remember specifically whether the team leader of the losing team is blaming his team outwardly or it's just obvious that that's what's happening even though he's not expressing it. Either way, it doesn't matter. The drill sergeant goes, okay, like you think it's the team's fault? Okay, let's switch. Let's put the best leader of the winning team with the worst team and take the worst leader of the losing team, put him with the best teams. They switch the leaders of the boat crews. Now let's see what happens when they run the race. And all of a sudden what happens is the losing team goes right to first place. And the winning team still does well. They stay in second. But that right there, profound thing for anyone working in an organization, because, you know, I live in community and community is all about teamwork and understanding how collaboration and checking your ego, but also stepping up when you have to. And all these kind of things. So these are principles that are extraordinarily valuable for anybody who's working with others, which I, I hope most people, you know, are connected to others. It's an important quality. And what he says is, you know, the revelation here is that what happened was the guy who was the leader of the best team understood how to uh, rein in everybody and get them moving in a direction and working together as a single unit. And the other group... They're all working as individuals fighting with one another in conflict and blaming one another for failing. But then even when the losing guy, leader, the, the losing team's leader went to the winning team, that winning team still had enough training and knowledge to function as a unit to move in the direction that they needed to go in. So they still were successful. But I think that this and, and, you know, there's a there's more that he goes into with this whole discussion, because it's not just, though, on the single person in charge. And, you know, everyone within that team is on an aspect of leadership. And this is something my, my teacher talks about where he's like, all of us are leaders and leadership is not the one always telling someone what to do. It's someone who is getting up to sweep the floor without being asked right they're setting an example of leadership of service of they're checking their ego they're just doing the work to quote another <laughs> phrase of, of a navy seal they're a silent professional i like that one a lot they are just doing the job with professional character and decency and quality but they're not boasting about it. they're like oh look at me i'm sweeping the floor that being said coming back to this other thing i don't know why i said that being said but i did Coming back to what he's talking about with the boat races, this is why good leadership is not about blaming others. Taking full responsibility for your results and actions as the team leader. 
and looking at what can you constantly do without making excuses for your lack of behavior to reanalyze, regroup, and reconfigure the situation for success. And I mean, for instance, he gives one example where it's like if someone on the team is slacking and failing, then you should be spending extra time after the organization meets to train them. And then, of course, you know, if you do all that stuff and you're really working at it, the whole thing and taking ownership of the situation, then uh, if someone fails still, then, you know, you have an obligation to the team success, to the mission success that you cut loose the person. And that's something that's more, I think, applied to like business and other realms um but at the same time you could look at it too like if you're with someone that has an addiction and you are um doing everything you're going to alan on whatever you're you know you're doing your work you're helping them in whatever way you can by working on yourself and beyond and then they're still continuing to drop the ball and do whatever it is they are with um self-sabotage then there is a moment where you have to leave in that relationship there's something else so you know there's there's commitment but then there's also letting go and understanding that dynamic relationship and this is what um these are these are principles and values that i think uh like i said can be applied to any circumstances and it's interesting you know to hear that teaching like there's no bad teams there's only bad leadership it's interesting to see how people in all types of realms in all types of dynamics whether it's people playing music together people trying to stay together in a relationship people working together to build something people uh working together uh, to do anything really to maintain a friendship whatever how we are constantly blaming the other right for what's happening that's not what we want to happen and that's a very dangerous and debilitating and self-sabotaging perspective to take for ourselves because even if the external world changes and is perfect if that's our general mentality is to blame the other find fault with the other then that is our own poison and there's a there's a buddhist saying that i just i love this one where it says to get angry at another is like swallowing poison and expecting it to kill that person because <laughs> then all, you're you're intoxicated with this bad attitude right this is what we're getting at here this mentality that stephen pressfield's talking about that krishna's talking about that david goggins jocko willink and uh, victor frankel we're talking about attitude our freedom the only real freedom in life is through your attitude although that attitude needs to be cultivated through action and work as the Bhagavad Gita is talking talking about it's not about sitting passively and you know having decisiveness in our actions these are all things that I am personally trying to study and it's interesting as I'm saying all these things and I'm studying these things as if I am actualized in any of this stuff i'm acutely reflecting on my own shortcomings in these worlds like i make excuses i complain i victimize i blame others i've done all this stuff but this is also why i wanted to as i said in the very beginning when i was in sixth grade i taught the class when you teach the thing then you can really start to grasp what's being expressed if you just hear it there's one thing but then when you start to teach it you can really start to grapple with the material and integrate it into your being and then simultaneously 
it's pretty hard to walk around being a hypocrite or saying one thing and doing another and it holds you to a higher standard it holds you to a higher level of values once you're expressing these things that hmm maybe i need to change maybe i'm the one that needs to change how can i change because i'm unhappy with the circumstances of life what is it that i need to do differently okay, I'm saying all this stuff. I better hold myself accountable to it as much as possible. At the same time, I did read a passage from Turning Pro. The professional has compassion for themselves, <laughs> right? So we have compassion for ourselves. We understand that we are not perfect. We are going to make mistakes. And that is actually perfect. Because if you were perfect, you wouldn't belong here. And Joseph Campbell says a beautiful thing about that. He's like, and I've said this on this podcast, babies and little animals are wonderful reflections of the divine because they're totally wonky and they can't keep their head up and they're goofy and they're just beautifully, divinely imperfect. In a lot of uh, Western religions, God is presented as this perfected, perfected being. And that's completely unrelatable. The, relate, the relatability of something that is imperfect makes it divine. So I hope that what's coming across is that flaws are an acute reflection of our divinity and not perfect and not being a perfect being. Although to you know to strive for perfection, I think that's wonderful. And I think that's what you know people like, Stephen Pressfield is emphasizing what Jocko and David Goggins and other people and, you know, BKSA Engar and people, all the, all the teachers and all the traditions of, of everywhere. They're emphasizing always refine and master and never settle with mediocrity. So we understand we're imperfect. We don't settle with mediocrity. And so we're coming back to this constant thing, right? This like this. Yin and yang, I have a picture of it in my mind where you got the white dot and the black and the black dot and the white. And it's like, okay, like we're striving for perfection, but we know we're flawed. <laughs> Auschwitz is the most horrible place on earth, but somehow it brought healing to people, myself, <laughs> amongst those people, you know. Okay, what does that mean? That's a real thing. That's not something I'm, I'm making up in a concept. I had a visceral, emotional thing that opened and cleared something that had been, you know, causing tremendous pain for me for years like okay <laughs> explain these things right you can't explain it but maybe krishna can explain it and so this is all about our mindset this is all about us understanding a little bit about what the process is that we're in because if this is a war and you don't have a choice and you have to fight that is a terrifying set of circumstances and how do you operate when it's not just a war where there's the other who's bad, but that's your family? Those are people that are ones you care and respect and adorn. And as you know, Ar what Arjuna says to Krishna is, how can I? Because what happens is if you're not familiar with the Bhagavad Gita is that Krishna, Arjuna shows up at this war, right? Families and I actually don't know perfectly the entire backstory, although I've heard it many times. This is why I'm also explaining the whole thing to get more sense of the process because as i said to explain it you master the understanding of it more and he shows up at the battlefield and he's like looking at it i have friends on this side masters of this on that it whoever wins 
how can that be any success? How can that be any happiness or glory in that? This is traumatic and horrific. I refuse to participate. And he throws down his weapons and says, I I am I would rather be killed uh unarmed and unresisting, he says. And he's overwhelmed with pity. And Krishna comes to him and says, Why this timidity, Arjuna, at a time of crisis? It is unworthy of a noble mind. It is shameful and does not lead to heaven. This cowardice is beneath you, Arjuna. Do not give in to it. Shake off your weakness. Stand up now like a man. Arjuna said, When the battle begins... It would be better to spend the rest of my life as a pauper begging for food than to kill these honored teachings. If I killed them all, all of my earthly pleasures would be smeared with blood. You know, and this is this is the that's the first this is uh chapter two, the practice of yoga, kind of like the setting the context for what's happening, right? And as I'm reading this, I'm just remembering too, this is the book that uh Mahatma Gandhi would read every morning. And it's interesting, right? You have a book about war that one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful figure in, in peace of resistance and peaceful change would read every day. So what is the teaching of that? Let's get into it. So Krishna says, Although you mean well, Arjuna, your sorrow is sheer delusion. Wise men do not grieve for the living or for the dead. Never was there a time when I did not exist, or you, or these kings, nor will there come a time when we cease to be. So, that first part right there. Wise men do not grieve for the dead or for the living. Also heard it translated, the learned grieve neither for the living nor the dead. And that's one of my favorite lines of anything I've ever read ever. And not just for the poetry of it, but just how many people have you actually come across in your life that have said something like that to you? <laughs> I mean, when you grow up in a family unit and you grow up uh, in whatever society you grow up, the value is like, oh, it's your family, you know, like... They're going to be gone and you'll be sad. And there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, grief is a necessary part of the process. That's what they tell you. And uh, there's just this, there's a very normal and natural, I would say, response to feel grief for the suffering of others who are alive and the people when they die. And right here he's saying, Wise men do not grieve for the dead or the living. That's a really intense and counter perspective to just what's natural, normal, and expected of us in a lot of ways. So right there, that's a very radical thing to say. Like, I mean, that the what I find interesting about these teachings from all these texts is they're very radical. They're not... I mean, like try going to a funeral whenever, and get up there on the podium and and say I'm I've grieved neither for the living nor the dead, or like some you know you you know you go somewhere where there was a a bombing or something and people are suffering. You go I grieve neither for the living nor the dead. 
I mean, you just that's cold blooded. That's that's people would look at you like you're a sociopath. So I do think that there is probably some degree of understanding that needs to be applied to this teaching where it's not just a concept. We got we got to grapple with it, right? That's what we got to go deeper into this. Because what is being expressed, right? Because this is we do know ahead of time. This is a book rooted in compassion. This is a book rooted in caring and service for others and peace. So that's a very intense teaching. It's a very radical statement. But I love it because I like radical and extreme things in a lot of ways. They resonate with me because, like I said, there's a revelation, apocalypse meaning revelation, in the extremities of life. It's in comfort that we find ourselves deluded and ignorant. So, Krishna continues, Just as in this body the self passes through childhood, youth, and old age, so after death it passes to another body. Physical sensations, cold and heat, pleasure and pain are transient. They come and go, so bear them patiently, Arjuna. Only the man who is unmoved by any sensations, the wise man, indifferent to pleasure, to pain, is fit for becoming deathless. Nothing can never be, being can never not be. Both these statements are obvious to those who have seen the truth. Okay, so what are we getting at here? Talking about sensations, cold and heat, pleasure and pain are transient. They come and go. Before I even get to that, I want to take a step back. I was in Varanasi, Benares, where they burned bodies that um, considered the centerpiece of the galaxy for the Hindu Hindu cosmology. And they burned the bodies and they released them into the Ganges. And I walked down to where they're burning them publicly because it's very open. It's India. India is another planet. As they say, there's the rest of the world and there's India. And that's very accurate um, in my experience. And I remember talking to a guy who was burying, not burying, who was uh, burning and releasing I, his father, I think it was. And he told me, I was like, are you sad? And he's like, oh, no, I'm so happy to be able to bring her here. Or him here, I don't remember. <laughs> I'm so happy. And you could tell he was genuinely happy about it. And so while that teaching I said prior, only the learned the learned grieve neither for the living and the dead. It's radical. There's also something very down to earth about that, right? Because when I die, I don't want, you know, Makoa, my son, or anyone else that is alive when I go to be sad. I want them to be like, man, I love that guy. That guy was incredible. I'm so grateful that I got to know that person and that they impacted me in such a positive way. I, I don't want people to be sad when I die. It, you know, obviously loss is loss on some level. But who wants people to be miserable when they die? Only someone that's miserable. If you're happy, my experience is when you're happy, you want other people to be happy. That's kind of my experience of how that works, right? Is when you have joy, you want to share it with others. So, uh, no, I don't want people to be miserable. And I think this is also kind of, this is like a more down-to-earth way to kind of express that prior one. And... We're going deeper, though, to say, like, okay, your mind is confused. That's what that's what, the, what I just read. 
is trying to explain. You, you have a mistaken identity and your mind is confused about what is happening. You think that it is this way, but it is not that way. It is something very different than that. And to be in a place of non-reactivity, bearing things patiently, unmoved, becoming indifferent to pleasure and pain, that makes you fit for becoming deathless, for entering into a place of eternity. And that equanimity, that can lead you to the truth of understanding that what you are is always present. And it can't go anywhere. So it kind of makes me think a little bit about when Ram Dass took LSD when he was still called Richard Alpert as a professor at Harvard. And he said he would look over at a, a black colleague and at the time they had this very um like liberal uh politically correct way of relating and as he looked at the person he real all that started to fade away and then as that faded away uh other aspects of identity faded away just as if they were pieces of clothing falling off and the way they related and understanding not that, the, oh, that's like a African-American colleague and I had to talk to him this way, but all of a sudden, oh, this is a, a human being. But then also seeing, like, this is someone that I'm not just a human being, but this person is part of an undifferentiated field of consciousness that I'm also connected to. And then from there, he draws the conclusion that, you know, all, all wars, he says, are civil wars because all men are brothers. Interesting the idea of just realizing the human family linked through that web, right? So non-being can never be and being can never not be. Both these statements are obvious to those who have seen the truth. The presence that pervades the universe is imperishable, unchanging beyond both is and is not. How could it ever vanish? These bodies come to an end, but that vast embodied self is ageless, fathomless, eternal. Therefore, you must fight Arjuna. If you think that this self can kill or think that it can be killed, you do not well understand reality's subtle ways. It never was born, coming to be. It will never not be. Birthless, primordial, it does not die when the body dies. Knowing that it is eternal, unborn, beyond destruction... How could you ever kill? And whom could you ever kill, Arjuna? Just as you throw out used clothes and put on other clothes, new ones, the self discards its used bodies and puts on others that are new. The sharpest sword will not pierce it, the hottest flame will not singe it, water will not make it moist, wind will not cause it to wither. It cannot be pierced or singed, moistened or wither, it is vast, perfect and all-pervading, calm, immovable, timeless. Okay, so... When I hear this, what is coming to me is all of us waking up and seeing the conflict of the world and the pain of the world and the environmental, mental, environmental catastrophe, the racism, genocide, all these things that are happening. It's traumatic and it's horrible. 
and we don't know what to do. We just want to give up and cry. And here comes Krishna, which is a metaphor for our higher cognitive, mystical consciousness, capacities, awareness manifested in this guy, Krishna. And it's the voice that Stephen Pressfield says calls you towards your, towards your work. The muse, right? It's the thing that moves you towards transcendence of the world. That's Krishna, which is many different things for people. And what he's saying is here that you must fight. No, you have to participate in the madness of the world. And in the Tao Tai Ching, it says, uh, the, the world is perfect. You think you can fix the world? It's perfect. If you try to fix it, you'll break it. <laughs> so what he's saying is don't try to stop the fight. Don't try to sit there and not get involved in the situation. You have to participate in it. No, you have to participate in this madness. That's, that's what he's just trying to communicate. And he's saying that we need to participate in it, but we're not seeing the picture clearly. And if you could only understand the picture a little more clearly, then you would have no reason for your sorrow, which is exactly what he says here. So we'll continue on. Death is certain for the born, for the dead. Rebirth is certain. I'll reword that correctly. Death is certain for the born. For the dead, rebirth is certain. Since both cannot be avoided, you have no reason for your sorrow. You have no reason for your sorrow because this is inevitable. It doesn't matter how healthy you are, how well you take care of everything, how much sage you burn, how many times you recite the mantra, how many good deeds you do. Death is coming for you. And if you have died, you will be reborn. There is nothing that any of us can do to avoid this situation. Therefore, perhaps, another radical perspective here, the um, emphasis and drama that we attach to death and life, but the, the drama attached to death, perhaps it's not so much of a big deal. That's an because you're not seeing the picture clearly. It's maybe it's just not a big deal. You know, that's a pretty radical teaching, you know. At the same time, Viktor Frankl said when they were in Auschwitz that life became cheap. That was what his phrase used. People were like, yeah, okay, my kid's dead. This person's dead. They're dying. Okay, this is what's happening. And it became just like almost out of despair, though, a nonchalant event. Like, okay, just this is what's happening. We're all just dying. And however, though, they were able to find freedom in their attitude. And this is what I think Krishna has come bringing forth here. He says, before birth, beings are unmanifest. Between birth and death, manifest. At death, unmanifest again. What cause for grief in all of this? Some perceive it directly in all its awesomeness. Others speak of it with wonder. Others hear of it and never know. The self who dwells in the body is invaluable forever. Therefore, you have no cause to grieve for any being, Arjuna. Know what your duty is and do it without hesitation. 
for a warrior, there's nothing better than a battle that duty enjoins. That's a powerful statement. Know what your duty is and do it without hesitation. For a warrior, there's nothing better than a battle that duty enjoins. So coming to this mindset of embracing the struggle, the difficulty, the pain, and go forth because one, you have to. Do not hesitate. Do not hold back. Go forth. And in addition to that, if anything, you should enjoy it. <laughs> and I, I think this is also that kind of that kind of statement is one thing that I, I like listening to the Navy SEALs about because, you know, I was listening to Jocko Willing talk about his time in combat and he says like, you know, for our time in is in combat, we there was it was the best time for us. We loved it, he says. It was also hell and there was the worst times too. You have both coming forth but they enjoyed the process and like i said we're not getting into politics politics and ethics and all that stuff we're just talking about the mindset of a person in war and the reality is that all those guys they were desiring to be in that combat situation they had to go out of their way to get uh sent there they had there was a moment he was saying where they could have been sent to the philippines to just do like these really simple boring things they could go into combat in the most violent place and they were like pushing so hard to get into the combat so that's the mentality that all of us need to find a way to embrace krishna is saying not only do you have to do it and have to do it without holding back you need to enjoy it because that's what it's about is about going into the place of the deepest struggle and david goggins i think is also you know as he never actually saw combat but his approach of this warrior mentality to physical endurance and athletics is perhaps a more relatable thing than someone actually in combat but he does a really wonderful way of describing how it's like this is what you're living for it's this this as he says you must go to war with yourself to find peace within yourself krishna continues though blessed are warriors who are given the chance of a battle like this which calls them to do what is right and opens the gate of heaven. Okay, so this is obviously different than an external combat situation. This is about going to war with ourselves to find peace, as David Goggins says. Because that peace is the gates of heaven that we're trying to open. But if you refuse the call to a righteous war and shrink from what duty and honor dictate, you will bring down ruin on your head, says Krishna. Refusing the call, the first stage in any archetypal hero's journey krishna says decent men for all time will talk about your disgrace and disgrace for a man of honor is fate far worse than death these great heroes will think that fear has driven you from battle all those who once esteemed you will think of you with contempt and your enemies will sneer and mock you the mighty arjuna that brave man he slunk from the field like a dog what deeper shame could there be if you are killed, you gain heaven, triumph, and you gain the earth. Therefore, stand up, Arjuna. Steady your mind to fight. Okay. I kind of think what's happening here is Krishna is mocking Arjuna, trying to just edge him on in that way. Because on one level, right, on a spiritual path, who cares about disgrace or success? Who cares about what someone calls you? This is not about 
an ego trip. It's not about titles and positions of power. <laughs> I saw a video with Mike Tyson recently, very short clip. He's talking to an interviewer, and the interviewer is like, wow, looking at all his belts that he has on display. This is incredible. This is history. And Mike Tyson goes, I'm going to do my best Mike Tyson impersonation. He's like, nah, man, this is all, this is trash, it's garbage. <laughs> and then, and then he, the guy goes, but doesn't this matter to you? And he's like, yeah, it mattered to me at one point. But now, you know, your values and perspectives change. All I want is my kids to be happy and do good things. <laughs> so titles are worthless, right? And I thought it was funny because I've heard that perspective taught many times from many different teachers and traditions. And I was like, wow, it seems that even uh, all paths lead to the same revelations, even for a street fighter turned professional boxer. And we can derive that that's, this is the perspective that Krishna is saying, where he's probably mocking Arjuna, just trying to mess with him in order to stir up action. Because immediately after he says, indifferent to gain or loss, to victory or defeat, prepare yourself for the battle and do not succumb to sin. This is philosophy's wisdom. Now hear the wisdom of yoga. Armed with this understanding, you will shatter your karmic bonds. On this path, no effort is wasted, no gain is ever reversed. Even a little of this practice will shelter you from great sorrow. Resolute understanding is single-pointed, Arjuna, but the thoughts of the irresolute are many-branched and endless. Foolish men talk of religion in cheap, sentimental words, leaning on the scriptures. God speaks here and speaks here alone. Okay, so right there he says, indifferent to gain or loss. It doesn't matter if you succeed or failure. That's not what this is about. So prior... Just two little, one stanza prior, paragraph prior, he says, If you're killed, you gain heaven, triumph, and you gain the earth. He's saying, look at what you can get, regardless of the direction it goes. Therefore, you have to fight. But then immediately he says, you're indifferent to that. It doesn't actually matter. And that's wisdom. That the results don't matter. Like, what a radical thing to hear that. And I, I'm choosing to do this podcast because I, I want to, f to further deepen my meditation on this. Because it's one thing to read it and say that's a spiritual holy text. It's another thing to really embrace that as a reality for how you are going to look at the world. Saying that all the conditioning of how I was told the world is and how I need to relate to it and what's healthy and what's normal could be completely distorted. As Jay Krishnamurti says, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So here we've heard, don't worry if you live or die, don't grieve for people who are alive or dead, and it doesn't matter actually what happens in any situation, whether you lose or you win. Now, that is essentially in contradiction to virtually most of all the pillars of Western society. <laughs> So that's a pretty radical perspective if you start to walk in your life that way. But saying that this is actually the step to freedom to shatter our karmic bonds. 
And I like that he says, no effort is wasted, no gain is ever reversed. Even a little of this practice. So what I feel is happening, we're trying to whittle the whole situation down to just focusing on what's happening in the moment. Do not worry about where the moment will take you, but get it down, refine it to this moment. Single-pointed. But the thoughts of the irresolute are many branched and endless. Make yourself a little more single-pointed. Only fools worry about scripture and God. Fools, Krishna says, are driven by desire for pleasure and power caught up in ritual. They strive to gain heaven, but rebirth is the only result of their striving. They are lured by their own desires, bestotted by the scripture's words. Their minds have not been made clear by the practice of meditation. By the practice of meditation. The scriptures dwell in duality. Be beyond all opposites, Arjuna, anchored in the real and free from all thoughts of wealth and comfort. As unnecessary as a well is to a village on the banks of a river, so unnecessary are all scriptures to someone who has seen the truth. So that's an interesting thing, right? Scripture telling you that the scripture is worthless. And then I'm saying, well, I'm going to sit down here and read the scripture. So I think what he's saying, though, is that if you already have the connection of what value is the thing telling you how to get the connection, you already have it. Therefore, you do not need to get it. <laughs> that being said, well, I don't have a response to it. That being said, it's a con it's a confusing and interesting meditation. That's all I will leave that as it to just reflect on. Okay, I spend time. Mahatma Gandhi spent time reading the scripture every day. I like to read the scripture. I like to study it, but it is essentially unnecessary. So I think maybe a good way to look at it as all. Practices and disciplines are simultaneously needed and unnecessary on a certain level because it's a stepping stone, but the idea of a stepping stone is not that you stay there forever. It's the step to the next path. As the Buddha says, the boat is there to get you to the other shore and you leave it behind once you have crossed. So Krishna says, you have a right to your actions, but never to your actions' fruits. Act for the action's sake, and do not be attached to inaction. Self-possessed, resolute, act without any thoughts of results, open to success or failure. This equanimity is yoga. So I want to stop there because that statement, this equanimity is yoga. If you want to know what yoga is, he says it right here, this equanimity. The one that is unattached to what the outcome is and is embraced fully in the action of the moment and doing so because the act is compelling the person. The act in and of itself to be in that place of the moment without attachment to the outcome is yoga. And it's amazing how yoga has become a physical exercise program in the West. And there is much more for people to drop into. There's service, there's breath work, there's prayer, there's singing, mantra, there is meditation, there's seeking knowledge. There's many 
avenues. However, the only thing that really makes it all yoga is not so much, it, this is my interpretation, what you're doing, but the equanimity that you're cultivating through the practice. So, why they say it's not so much what you're doing, but how you do it. Raising a family can be yoga. There's a Taoist teaching about a butcher who's doing this, butchering a cow, but he's doing it in a very Taoist way, and it becomes a reflection of the divine. You know, there's these kind of little things you find, little stories you find that try to reveal that it's not what you're doing, it's how you do it. Because you could be doing something very beautiful and wonderful service for the world, and your attitude is totally toxic, and you hate it. Is that really liberating you? given what we learned from Viktor Frankl, that liberation is an attitude. No. If your attitude towards it is bad, it's poisoning you. Even if the action is very beautiful. Because don't be attached to the fruits of your labor. The, the result is unimportant. So what you're doing is toxic as you do it. It'll make it, then that's what you're bringing forth. And this is in a lot of ways why they say money does not lead to happiness because it's, you're chasing an external outcome by doing something you hate. That's why they say don't do jobs that you hate, right? They say you should do things that you enjoy. I once did drive-alongs with police officers in college in Ohio. It was actually kind of crazy. The first guy I was, the guy I was with who I'm referring to here, actually I was with him when he drew a gun on somebody interesting experience i was in the front seat of the cop car but i was sitting with him late at night we were trying to pull people over speeding and he was saying to me you know work it uh find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life right there that equanimity is yoga <laughs> that's great right that guy was probably pretty enlightened in a lot of ways he was actually like his mentality you know he had a really good mentality and just so you know cops have the highest rate of suicide divorce divorce and alcoholism so that guy, though, was like really clean in a lot of ways. He was an enlightened cop. Who knows? Then I watched him draw a gun on somebody. It's not what you do. It's how you do it. <laughs> All right. I'm just messing around a little bit. So Krishna says, action is far inferior to the yoga of insight, Arjuna. Pitiful are those who acting are attached to their actions fruits. So action is good and necessary, but it's actually inferior to insight, to, to the knowledge. The wise man lets go of all results, whether good or bad, and is focused on the action alone. Yoga is skill in actions. So it's not just equanimity, it's the application of equanimity to your actions. The wise man whose insights are firm, relinquishing the fruits of action, is freed from the bondage of rebirth and attains the place beyond sorrow. The cultivation Krishna is, is trying to communicate here, I think, is that cultivation of this equanimity will lead you to a place where you transcend life and death itself. Okay, that's profound. When your understanding has passed beyond the thicket of delusions, there is nothing you need to learn from even the most sacred scripture. Indifferent to scriptures, your mind stands by itself, unmoving, absorbed in deep meditation. This essence is... is essence of yoga okay so that's the opportunity presented and arjuna has to ask okay 
He says, how would you describe the man who is wisdom is steadfast, Krishna? How does the wise man speak? How does he sit, stand, and walk? The blessed Lord says, when a man gives up all desires that emerge from the mind and rests contented in the self, by the self, he is called a man of firm wisdom. He whose mind is untroubled by any misfortune, whose craving for pleasures has disappeared, who is free from greed, fear, and anger, who is unattached to all things, who neither grieves nor rejoices if good or bad things happen, that man is a man of firm wisdom. Having drawn back all his senses from the objects of sense, as a tortoise draws back into its shell, that man is a man of firm wisdom. Sense objects fade for the abstinence, abstinent, yet the craving for them continues, but even the craving vanishes for someone who has seen the truth. At first, although he continually tries to subdue them, the turbulent senses tear at his mind and violently carry it away. Restraining the senses, disciplined, he should focus his whole mind on me. When the senses are in his control, that man is a man of firm wisdom. If a man keeps dwelling on sense objects, attachment to them arises. From attachment, desire flares up. From desire, anger is born. From anger, confusion follows. From confusion, weakness of memory, weak memory, weak understanding. Weak understanding, ruin. But the man who is self-controlled, who meets the objects of the senses with neither craving nor aversion, will attain serenity at last. In serenity, all his sorrows disappear at once forever. When his heart has become serene, his understanding is steadfast. So I want to stop for a moment here. And I like what he says, when his heart has become serene. One of the beautiful teachings in the Dhammapada, teachings of the Buddha, the way is not in the sky, the way is in the heart. And I can remember first getting into the spiritual path and feeling like it, you know, something about in this really cosmic out there kind of way of leaving the body and the whole thing of going beyond uh, missing that the teaching of the Dhammapada and the Gita here when his heart has become serene the way is not in the sky the way is in the transformation and transmutation of the energies of the heart through discipline of the senses and steadfastness, equanimity, and embracing neither craving nor aversion, which is equanimity. But, you know, this is, I think, a big part of what we're emphasizing here is where do we look? We look within, but what does it mean to look within? Because that can look within your heart. And Krishna continues, the undisciplined have no wisdom, no one-pointed concentration, with no concentration, no peace. With no peace, where can joy be? When the mind constantly runs after the wandering senses, it drives away wisdom like the wind blowing a ship off course. And so, Arjuna, when someone is able to withdraw his senses from every object of sensation, that man is a man of firm wisdom. 
In the night of all beings, the wise man sees only the radiance of the self, but the sense world where all beings wake for him is as dark as night. The man whom desires enter as rivers flow into the sea, filled yet always unmoving, that man finds perfect peace. Abandoning all desires, acting without craving, free from all thoughts of I and mine, that man finds utter peace. So here we're kind of getting the sense of why were we in this deluded state? It's because our senses are telling us that the world is one way, but that by turning our mind inwards like a tortoise goes into a shell, we can see the radiance of the self and truth. As he says, this is the divine state, Arjuna, absorbed in it everywhere, always, even at the moment of death, the person vanishes into God's bliss. And so I think this is where we can start to find kind of an explanation uh, that's not so esoteric about why not to grieve for the learned nor uh, why the learned grieve neither for the living nor the dead and, and why not to be attached to success or failure and he's saying that these are to grieve for people and to make yourself miserable you lose that equanimity and when you are craving success or, or you're fearing failure you're losing your equanimity and in addition we seek success or failure thinking it will bring us peace and joy or we uh, find ourselves in tremendous sorrow with loss because we thought that that thing was making us joyful but the reality is that that was a conclusion derived from unquestioning and undisciplining our sense perceptions once we discipline and question our belief systems and our sense perceptions and we turn inwards we find that there is an a, a eternal ever-pervading state of unity and bliss and freedom profound okay this is it's like this is very much the teaching of plato's allegory of a cave you've been chained to the wall let's i'm just going to share my rendition of the allegory of the cave because I like to go off on tangents, and it's very relevant, actually. So, you were born into darkness, and you're in a cave, and you're chained from your feet all the way up to your neck. You can't move left or right, and you're staring at the cave wall. And on that wall, there's flickering shadows of all different types of things. And objects, there's a chair, a plant a giraffe all kinds of stuff right things dancing on the wall and there's other people in the cave with you to your left to your right so on so forth but you're all chained you can't turn your head and look at each other you can just talk at one another and what happens is you see a shadow on the wall and one person goes oh that's my sh that's my walrus you go, no, no, that's my cup. And then you have a big argument about it, and you're fighting and you're yelling about who owns it and what it is and what it's all about and whether or not it can be have an abortion and if that abortion is legal or not or whether it can smoke pot and that should be legal and you're arguing about the whole thing and you're saying, I should have this much, you should have that much. 
But what you're both failing to understand is that you are chained. You don't realize it because you've been there since birth. You're like those cows that they raise from birth to be veal or something. They're chained. They can't move, so they're really weak. You've been chained there. And that's just how you always see in the world is you just argue about that thing on the wall and create tons of conflict about it and misery and injustice because of your mentality about it. And then what happens is one day something very mysterious occurs that just like breaks your chain open. And all of a sudden you turn your head and you're like, whoa, you look around and you realize that everyone, including you, has been chained. And you're staring at shadows on a wall. You're like, what is going on? You didn't realize that. I mean, just because you've been in this cocoon for so long. You've been in this pod, just like the Matrix, right? You're in that pod. This is the way you see the world. This is how it is. And then what happens is you turn around and you see that there is or there are other people who are able to walk. And you're sneaking around because you don't want to get caught. And that's very disturbing. All of a sudden, wait a minute, we've been prisoners, all of us, fighting with each other prisoners fighting with each other about nothing and seeing that there's other people and those other people though are walking in front back and forth in front of the fire carrying objects that cast a shadow on the wall for the prisoners to argue about and you can see those people would be walking there they're like you would say very smug and feel very full of themselves and feel that they possess something very great because they have, they have the object, the actual object. And they're walking. And, of course, they're not carrying a draft. They're carrying a stuffed animal draft. Of course, they're not carrying, you know, a real plant because they're in a cave. They're carrying a plastic plant, maybe. And you sneak around them. You keep going, so you're like, what the hell is going on? And you find a ladder, and you are climbing up the ladder, towards a light and just as the ladder step breaks and you're about to fall you're dangling there and you go i'm not gonna get out of this i'm gonna fall and die in the cave a hand reaches down and grabs you and pulls you up and you get up there and you're just you're blinded by the whole light right and suddenly you start to come to your vision starts to clear you can't look up at the light. You can only look down at the reflection in what is water. And the hand is person's gone. There's no one there. It's just you. And you're looking at the water, and you can see the reflection of the sun. And you go, wow. And then you look up, and you see the sun, and oh my god, the brilliance of it. Behold. <laughs> oh. And you see the sun and you're blinded by it even more so and because it's so overwhelming and so profound you crawl back down into the cave but also not just because of that you realize there are others down there who are caught in their delusion and their ignorance and you want to help them and so you go back to free them and you get down there and you try to explain to them 
guys. We're trapped down here. We're prisoners. The real world is up there and out there. This is not what you're supposed to be looking at. We got to get free. And that is a threat to the system. And they kill you. <laughs> or they crucify you or imprison you. Silence him. As Bill Hicks says, shut him up. We have a lot invested in this game. Look at my big bank account. My family. My furrows of worry. <laughs> and I'm taking some creative liberty with that story a little bit. I don't recall Plato saying that they kill you, but I do think that was the what he was emphasizing. And, you know, look at Socrates, right? Socrates has put to death through hemlock for corrupting the youth speaking the truth revealing the ignorance of the chained and specifically the ones in power constructing the artificial world for us to live in which can this is a multifaceted layered metaphor the people in power can be politicians they can be corporations they can be your parents they can be your friends they could be your sense perceptions themselves sight hearing smell so on it could be many things that chain your perception it could be all of those things working together in a conditioned harmony of consciousness to create an illusion which you are then imposing on others and others imposing their version of their reality tunnel on you and then all of a sudden there is conflict and violence in the world and suffering and no one knows why and suddenly somehow magically mysteriously you break free who knows how why what causes it there's a lot of things out there that can do it and you escape to the realm of ideas to bliss consciousness to ananda to awareness revelation about the depth of the mind of life of intellectual going beyond itself the body pushing beyond itself all kinds of things whatever the transcendental speaks to you and in that place tremendous compassion for others and a desire to help others arises within you that compels you to go back to lower realms to provide a way out of delusion and confusion and suffering and in your attempts to do so, you are ostracized, alienated, condemned, imprisoned, executed, and so on and so forth. Maybe you're a martyr like Christ, or maybe you're just another person that's killed at the hand of the state, and no one ever knows your name. Who knows? But it's not about, as we've been told in the Gita, about the outcome, success or failure. It's about the act, the fact that you were compelled to move from a place of compassion for others, from a heart-centered place, the path is in the heart, you are moved towards that area. And that's what directed and guided you. It wasn't about whether you set anyone free or any of it. It was about the fact that you became, as Stephen Pressfield would talk about, an instrument of the divine, a channel for the divine compassion and unity and desire for liberation and catharsis and enlightenment to move through to help bring this transformation and transmutation to the world and that no effort no matter how small on the path as krishna says 
is ever a failure or wasted. To give oneself fully to the action, to do one's duty as a warrior, to go into battle, to not stay up in la-la land, but to go forth and act with conviction from that place and to give oneself regardless of the outcome is true service to the world and true yoga unity to yoke to find unity within yourself and to end that dissonance and to act from that place for the benefit of others so chapter three the yoga of action arjuna said if you think that understanding is superior to action krishna why do you keep on urging me to engage in this savage act with words that seem inconsistent, your teaching has bewildered my mind. Tell me what I must do to arrive at the highest good. The blessed Lord says, In this world there are two main paths. The yoga of understanding for contemplative men, and for men who are active, the yoga of action. Not by avoiding actions does a man gain freedom from action. And not by renunciation alone can he reach the goal. No one, not even for an instant, can exist without acting. All beings are compelled, however unwilling, by the three strands of nature called gunas. Okay, two main paths. The yoga of understanding for contemplative men. Someone that can sit down and philosophically come to the revelation of what the scriptures are offering where this is what you would talk about like in zen buddhism with satori being a state all of a sudden that flips on like a light switch of no mind and often brought to you through the process of uh, a koan which is a small little poem right that is uh trying to it's it's paradoxical to the point where it's supposed to make you fizzle out and all of a sudden just come to this direct experiential state that plato is talking about when you leave the cave and what he's saying is like for instance one of the most famous koans is what is the face you have before you were born what is the sound of one hand clapping i just gave you two at once that's like trying to compound your koanism but what is the face before you had you had before you were born has no answer it just makes you pause and ideally enter into that state and Ram Das talks about a very funny story where they're doing a Zen retreat, very intense, very, very intense. The Zen tradition, they hit you with a stick if you move so much as smidge while meditating at three in the morning. <laughs> and then you have to bow to them and say, thank you. That'll teach you to not be disciplined. I'm going to hit you with a big stick. I love the Zen tradition. Man, that's cool. They just hit you with a giant stick. That's what Zen, that's what New Age teachings need. More Zen, meaning hitting people with a stick who are falling asleep at three in the morning when they flinch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds intense. Uh, easy to say from my little studio here. Anyways, <laughs> the Zen master gave Ram Dass a koan, saying something about like, "How does a cricket have Buddha nature?" I don't recall specifically the koan. But Ram Das kept going to him, and every time he would go, Zen Master would go, no, keep meditating. And after, you know, and then this state of exhaustion, keep getting hit with the stick, and you're not sleeping much, and can't get the koan right. And he gets there, 
you know, he goes through all the waves of emotions thinking he's got it. Despair. Frustration. Um, you know, apathy. And then he finally gets to a place where it becomes amusing. He has no answer. He just looks at the Zen master when he goes up again to give him the answer to the koan. He just looks at him and smiles. <laughs> And is, and is in a state of just like, I don't even know what you want me to say at this point. And at that moment, the Zen master goes, ah, you got it. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. So we're seeking a state of consciousness. And there's ways to do it through just understanding. But for people who have a highly active energy, who are not so mentally oriented, action is an equally viable path. And... No one, though, can exist without acting. I mean, even just by being alive, there's autonomic processes happening in our body. So, Krishna continues, The superior man is he whose mind can control his senses. With no attachment to results, he engages in the yoga of action. Do any actions you must do, since action is better than inaction. Even the existence of your body depends on necessary actions. The whole world becomes a slave to its own activity, Arjuna. If you want to truly free, perform all actions as a worship. So, true freedom, everything is in life a ceremony, as the Weechel say. All life is a ceremony, not just the moment when you put on the nice outfit and you say the fancy prayers and you smile at everybody and you oh, I bow. And then you leave there, and then you're cursing everything, and complaining, and victimizing, and you're bored, and you're uninspired, and ungrateful. No, you're d missing the thing here. As the Wichole say, all of life is a ceremony. You want to be free, all actions are worship. Okay. The Lord of creatures formed worship together with mankind and said, By worship you will always be fruitful, and your wishes will be fulfilled. By worship, you nourish the gods, and the gods will nourish you, and in turn, by nourishing one another, you assure the well-being of all. That's, I like, that's powerful, man. I like that one. I've underlined quite a bit of this book. I haven't underlined that one, but I like it. By nourishing one another, you assure the well-being of all. I mean, that's like, to me, I find a lot of solace in that single line there, because they're saying that, all the miseries and pain of the world, you know, by turning your life into an act of worship, well-being will come to everything and everyone. And in, you know, the Tao Tai Ching, it says, have compassion for yourself and redeem all beings. So these are very different people writing different things at different times, different places in the world, and they're saying the same thing. So there must be something about the inner reality that provides this as a revelation. Nourished by your worship, the gods will grant whatever you desire, but he who accepts their gifts and gives nothing back is a thief. That's interesting. That's kind of, to me, like an esoteric, mystical, um, magic with a K type teaching. Like, you can get what you want, but if you don't give it back, you are a, th you are a thief and... We have, there are repercussions to that. That's what I would, I'm deriving from it. 
So be careful what you wish for and be equally conscientious of reciprocation. Good men are released from their sins when they eat food offered in worship, but the wicked devour their own evil when they cook for themselves alone. Wow. You know, I live in community, but I oftentimes will um, cook dinner for myself. And, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to sit here and think to myself that I'm now wicked. <laughs> Metaphors. All right, so... What we're saying is perhaps that if we selfishness is connected with evil. And that's an obvious statement. Everyone quote unquote knows that. But you can never hear that enough. Selfishness. The true enemy is inside of us. That is what we're trying to derive from. And to be in service towards that selfish enemy inside is a wicked act. Krishna says, Beings arise from food, food arises from rain, rain arises from worship, worship from ritual action. Ritual action from God, God from the deathless self. Thus, the all-present God requires the worship of men. He who fails to keep turning the wheel thus set in motion has damaged the working of the world and has wasted his life, Arjuna. But the man who delights in the self and feels pure contentment and finds perfect peace in the self, for him there is no need to act. He has nothing to achieve by action, nothing to gain by inaction, nor does he depend on any person outside himself. Without concern for results, perform the necessary action, surrendering all attachments, accomplish life's highest good. Only by selfish action did John Akka and otherwise kings govern and thus assure the well-being of the whole world. Okay. These are kind of... I don't have an immediate response to these. I have to kind of meditate on this. It's interesting because he's saying, Rain arises from worship, worship from ritual action, ritual action from God. And in a lot of ways... Ritual can be a distraction. And, you know, perhaps this is kind of my Buddhist perspective interfering with my understanding of this text because Buddhism was in very much a reaction against Hinduism, specifically ritual. But it's interesting here because he says, He who fails to keep turning the wheel, set in motion, has damaged the workings of the world and wasted the life. But then he also says immediately after, but if there's but the man who delights in the self feels pure contentment, there's no need to act. So that's kind of a contradiction on some level, at least from my own I, my own momentary understanding of it. Because he's saying that you need to act. But if you're if you have found in the self perfect peace, then you don't need to act. Perhaps what he's offering here is that as you come to that for most of us pretty, pretty much all of us unless you're a Ramana Maharashi or something you have to act but if you know if you can find the place that Ramana Maharashi is in you don't have to do it you can just sit there and, and forever be in peace which is what he did in the cave for many years in silence so I as I'm sharing this you know I don't 
I don't have a perfect interpretation of this. That's like why I said I'm I'm really a sixth grader teaching other sixth graders here, and it's not. Um, I don't know any more than anyone else does, but I am trying to learn it by teaching it. So I think what he's trying to offer is that if you don't act, you'll damage the situation. You'll fail to find transcendence. But if you're already transcended, then you don't need to act. But virtually anyone reading this, ideally, it'd be confusing if otherwise, has not reached the state. He continues, whenever, whatever a great man does, ordinary people will do. Whatever standards he sets, everyone else will follow. Leadership here, we're talking about. In all the three worlds, Arjuna, there is nothing I need to do, nothing I must attain, and yet I engage in action. For if I were to refrain from my tireless, continual action, mankind would follow my example and would also not act, Arjuna. If I stopped acting, these worlds would plunge into ruin, chaos would overpower all beings, mankind would be destroyed. Though the unwise cling to their actions, watching for results, the wise are free from attachments and act for the well-being of the whole world. The wise man does not unsettle the minds of the ignorant. Quietly acting in the spirit of yoga, he inspires them to do the same. Okay, this is interesting, right? Coming back. Silent professional. <laughs> but also, this is interesting because I was just talking about the allegory of the cave. The wise man does not unsettle the minds of the ignorant. Now, the allegory of the cave is obviously, you know, about enlightenment, revelation, transcendence. But it's a Western interpretation from Plato, Socrates, and Greece. And, you know, the Tao Tai Ching says something like, leave people alone, let them be. You know, don't interfere. And here it says, don't unsettle the minds of the ignorant. Quietly act in the spirit of yoga inspires them to do the same. This being said, though, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, I mean... If there's one thing he did, it was unsettle the minds of the ignorant. God bless me. And he and he's often looked at as a perfect expression on a human level. I think in service, you know, in karma yoga and, and trying to live out these principles, even though he was imperfect, although as we discussed prior, imperfection is divine. So it's an interesting teaching that I'd, I think what we're getting at here is not that if you're acting in the spirit of yoga it will inspire people to do the same. And the spirit of yoga will unsettle the minds of the ignorant. It will. Nonetheless, he's saying, don't try to change the world, change yourself. Be the change you wish to see in the world through the process of yoga. And don't waste time trying to fix other people. As Ram Dass says, all I can do is work on myself. So, you know, trying to uh, change the, the fundamental problem of life by flipping out who's president. I mean, it's like I, I, I had a guy come over to our property the other day to give me a quote on a mini split heating system, which was exorbitantly high. And I'm like, whoa, why is that so expensive? I thought it was a fraction of that. And he goes, oh, blame Joe Biden. <laughs> and then just go into a rant about the problems of life you know, and stresses of life linked to Joe Biden. And it's like, okay, 
<laughs> that's a really comical example i mean but at the same time you know just think about how we do this we all do this we all find someone out there that we want to condemn or blame or fix or change and it's not an effective strategy krishna is telling us Krishna says, actions are really performed by the working of the three gunas. By a man deluded by the eye sense, he imagines that I am the doer. The wise man knows that when objects act on the senses, it is merely the gunas acting on the gunas. Thus, he is unattached. Deluded by the gunas, men grow attached to the gunas' actions. The insightful should not disturb the foolish men. Okay. Performing all actions for my sake, desireless, absorbed in the self, indifferent to I and mine, let go of your grief and fight. Men who constantly practice this teaching of mine, Arjuna, who trust it with all their heart, are freed from the bondage of actions. But those who missed, trustful, half-hearted, fail to practice my teaching, wander in the darkness, lost, stupefied by delusion. Even the wise man acts in accordance with his inner nature. All beings follow their nature. What good can repression do? So, right there. Act in accordance with your inner nature. What good can repression do? Let things flow. Open up to what wants to be expressed through you and the way it wants to be done. Use guidance and equanimity and non-attachment and control, but also be in accordance with what is natural. And I've personally found that that is a very difficult yet necessary thing to embody on the path of yoga is cultivating an equanimity, a non-reactivity, an endurance, patience, but also to just be authentically yourself and to be natural and to not be overly repressive and controlled and stifled. And that is a difficult, challenging, balancing posture. But one that should be a constant meditation because it's very easy to tip off too far in one side. For most people, they're not practicing yoga of this sort, so they are say loose in the character but then if you get really really rigid fundamentalist all of a sudden you have let's fly a plane in the building because that's the way to deal with ungodly people that's super extreme we could even look at something more relatable like um i get really uptight uh, about sharing anything personal or i my ethics are so overbearing because yoga i can't have a single grain of sugar i can't say a curse word i can't make a joke <laughs> okay let's react re relax a little bit difficult to do though and one of the things i find most challenging about living in like a monastic environment is like not is, is finding you know the natural groove of your authentic expression in relationship to the discipline of your practice it's just a challenging thing and I don't think it's supposed to be easy like when you do the balancing postures you're in half moon am I pronouncing right Ardhan Chandrasana 
and you're balancing there you never really get totally still maybe for a split second but the it's not about the stillness so much as it is about cultivating the balance to remain in a state where you're being challenged and remain calm and composed craving and aversion arise when the sense encounter sense objects do not fall prey to these two brigands blocking your path it is better to do your own duty badly than to perfectly do another's you are safe from harm when you should be doing when you do what you should be doing i have a star next to that one this is a super crucial important teaching on many levels we all have a responsibility calling to us from within and everywhere you go there's social pressures to do something else but when we are truly in alignment with what wants to be moving through us naturally mystically humanistically and in alignment with that we're safe from harm krishna is saying do what you're supposed to do it's better to do it with not the best results than it is to master someone else's effort don't waste your time doing things that are imposed upon you from the outside world that are a little connection to your path I'm trying to find a concrete example in my mind of this but this could just be something as simple as someone telling you oh you should get a job in the tech industry and pressuring you to do that but you're called inside to be an artist that's a really simple classic thing right but you do that misery comes to you and purposelessness but instead you become an artist there's a joy that arises that connects you to the, this larger field of life that opens mysterious doors that only could have opened for you okay i am going to stop now and we're going to pick up with the next episode continuing on trying to understand exactly what yoga is and the yoga of action and thank you for listening i hope you guys enjoyed it so far and stay tuned for the next episode all right. Peace.